All right, for those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks, and I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland, and we're going to continue on in our series about uh, Joseph, and summer's over, and as I often say to my kids, fun time is over, uh, to which my daughter Joy sometimes says, so where was I for fun time? But, uh, um, but yeah, it's good to have everybody back at church now, and you know, just before we get into, into uh, part six here of Joseph, and again, hopefully most of you haven't been gone all summer. And so we've been uh, doing Joseph here for a while and, and working through the whole story kind of verse by verse. And, and uh, we've done all of chapter 37 and, and, and most of 39 and most of 40. I've got to go back to chapter 39 for just a little bit. We're going to talk about Potiphar's wife today. And I've, I've been looking forward to preaching about her for some time. But just before we uh, talk about her and do part six of our series here, I just wanted to, again, just re-mention to you, remind you, this Friday uh, evening, 7 to 9, then dessert afterwards is the Arise Volunteer Conference, and then we'll also have Saturday morning from 9 to 12. And uh, those of you who are here today who are volunteers, we've got over 1,500 volunteers here at this church, and that's what makes this church go. And uh, those of you who come to our volunteer extravaganza every year, and we're having, we have it every year, we'll have it again this year in March. Um, our volunteer extravaganza, other than our, like our prayer summits, is one of my favorite uh, events here at this church. There's something different. I love the weekends. I love all of you guys, and, and I love weekends, and I love the worship and all sort of stuff, but there's something special. When you get the people together who are all serving and committed here, we experience a little bit of the book of Acts. It's true. Every time we do it, we worship together. All of, all of us who are serving, we worship together. We get some vision. We get some teaching, and there's an, there's an anointing. It's like the book of Acts, where the people were all, they just shared everything they had. They got together. They prayed. They worshiped. And uh, this Arise Conference now, we, we, you know, we've enjoyed the volunteer extravaganza so much that we said, you know, we've got to add one more volunteer event a year. We'll do the extravaganza always in spring, and we'll do a training one uh, in, uh, in fall, but we're going to worship, and we're going to get together, and it's really, it's powerful when you get all of us volunteers together. And there's just something about, you know, church is a lot more than just coming on the weekend and hearing me or, or Pastor Ray and just trying to get fed. There is something that happens to you spiritually. There's a spiritual dynamic when you actually say, I'm in, you begin to serve, you begin to sacrifice, and now you get together with other people who are on the same page, same family, it's awesome. And uh, those of you who, you know, sometimes people are afraid they come into a big church. It's like, oh, it's kind of big and stuff. You know, when you start serving, you start coming together with us. When we get together, all of us volunteers, it doesn't feel big anymore. I'm going to tell you something right now. Uh, you know, heaven's going to be big, okay? Heaven's going to be real big. Uh, those of you who just, you know, I sometimes hear people talking about how, you know, they don't like big, big churches, you know, too many Christians in one spot. You know what? Heaven's not going to be small, okay? Heaven's going to be big, and it's going to be people who love to serve Jesus. These events, it's a little touch of heaven. That is what it is. It's a little touch of heaven. So I'd encourage those of you who are volunteering and serving, come out this Friday. Those of you who don't serve or volunteer yet, get involved. You're going to meet people, and God's going to do something in your life. It's powerful, right? So let's pray, and then we get into part six here. Potiphar's wife. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I love you, and we love you here at this church. That's why we do what we do. And uh, today I want to speak, and Jesus, I just pray that you would, it has to be you doing the work. And I'm just up here, I'm going to partner with you, and I pray that you would speak through me, and I pray that you would change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So like I said, we've done most of chapter 39, we've done most of chapter 40 as well, and I just have to go back, we just have to finish the Potiphar story, which we skipped over uh, a few weeks ago, because it, it was just too much to do in one point in that message, so I'm coming back to it now. So we start chapter 39, and verse 6 says this, Now Joseph was handsome in form 
and appearance. And you know, it's, it's, it, it just made me think this week. I'm going, he was handsome in form and appearance, and he was handsome enough that the Holy Spirit had, the, had Moses write this detail in for all of eternity, okay? And I'm reading this. Joseph was handsome, and he's the full package. He's not just the face. He's the form. He's got the body. He's got the face. He's handsome in both form and appearance. And I'm going, Lord, you know, why would you put that in there? And then I got curious. So I did a little Bible study in my office, and I, I said, Lord, I want to, I don't know how many, hand, you know, how many guys were that handsome in the Bible that you actually wrote it down in, in your word? And, uh, and so I counted, and I was hoping it wouldn't be too many. And because, uh, uh, you know, we, many of us, we're normal, right? We're average. We, we can't identify with that. But I found five other ones. In the entire Bible, there's only six people that the Holy Spirit said, you know, that guy was just handsome. And uh, one of them was Saul, okay? So that made me feel good because he didn't turn out good. And uh, he was said to be the most handsome man in Israel. Uh, one of them was King David, who had said, uh, now he was said to be so handsome, and he was also said to be ruddy, which is really, I don't know, but whatever, whatever that means. But it also was said that he, uh, he had beautiful eyes. So women, I mean, think about that, right? This guy was a musician, okay? He was a crazy dancer, all right? And he was a hero warrior. Too bad there's not marriage in heaven, right? Okay, but that was David. He's the only one really that turned out good. Two of his sons were said to be handsome. Absalom and uh, another guy starts with A. Neither of them turned out good. And then there was some random Egyptian guy in 1 Kings 6 who uh, died fighting the Israelites. And God, yeah, that, there's one sentence about him. Uh, one of David's mighty men killed this Egyptian who was a handsome man, okay? So there's only six. And, uh, and uh, so I looked at this. I said, you know, I, I feel pretty good about that. Out of all the many, many, many characters in the Bible, okay, only, you know, all the guys, not so, a bunch of beautiful women too. And uh, Joseph's mom, I mean, Joseph came by it, it honestly. You, you read in Genesis, I think it's 29 or somewhere in there, but his, his mom was very beautiful too. But, um, but out of all the dozens and dozens of characters and men who are in the Bible, you know, only six are described as handsome, and that means there's a lot of hope for us guys, okay? You don't have to be handsome to serve God's kingdom, that's for sure. In fact, you know, I, I actually like, uh, I, because I just really got carried away with this handsome thing for about an hour this week, and uh, <laughs> I, I looked at, there's actually some early church writings about Paul, and I, I way more identify with Paul on this one, and they describe what, you know, probably Paul looked like, the Apostle Paul, and they said he had skinny legs and a big nose, and I said, oh, amen, God. <laughs> oh, give me the Apostle Paul, amen. But anyway, but Joseph, that wasn't Joseph, okay? Okay, Joseph was handsome in both form and appearance, okay? So he's, he, he was a looker, all right? But now, there's perks with being handsome, with being handsome like that, but, it, you know, being attractive can also be a curse. And that's what we're going to find out in the very next verse. Because when you're attractive, you can more easily attract other people's lusts, right? When you're attractive, you more easily attract the attention of lustful people. And that's what happens to Joseph. His, his handsomeness, you know, for the, at this stage in his life becomes a curse because we see in verse 7, And after a time... Potiphar's wife, do you remember Potiphar is his master? He's been sold into slavery. And after a time, Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, uh, lie with me, all right? And, and, you know, the amazing thing about this is Joseph really has every reason to give in, okay? I mean, we just, again, we just, we read through these passages. We kind of skim over them. We skim over what, how severe of a temptation this would have been for Joseph. He had every reason to give in. I mean, first of all, he's, he's the slave. She's the, the master's wife. 
And this was back in a day and age, you know, there, you know, there wasn't rights for slaves, okay? There wasn't, a, you know, the Manitoba Board of, of, you know, Workplace Health and Safety where you could go and file a sexual harassment complaint or something like that. I mean, that, this is in Egypt, and, and masters could do whatever they wanted with their slaves, and often that involved uh, sexual favors. And, and so she is in a position to, if he is refusing, to, to cause him a lot of pain, to get him into a lot of trouble, okay? And so, I mean, right there is an excuse to give in, right? I mean, right there, it's like, uh, you know, Lord, I'm, I'm just a slave. I could get into huge trouble. You know, Lord, if, you, if you're going to let her do this, if you're not going to stop her, I mean, I just sort of, and he, he could just go along with it and make excuses, right? Not to mention the fact, not to mention the fact of all the bad stuff that's happened to him. He's been betrayed by his brothers, right? He's been sold into slavery. He shouldn't be a slave, and if there's one thing I've observed about myself and about us as human beings in general, have you ever noticed this? When things go bad in people's lives, often uh, people get mad at God. We get mad at God. It's all of us, not just you guys. It's me. It's all of us. We do this at times, right? Things go bad in our life. You get mad at God, and then in your anger, I often see this. People get, they get bitter at God over stuff that's happened in their life, and then it's like, you know what? Why fight the temptation? Like, why would I resist temptation? They're sort of upset at God, and they sort of take it out on him in a sense. They just say, why would I fight against temptation? And in their anger and their bitterness, they just give in to, to the temptation. And you know what? And I see, a lo- I see that regularly. A lot of people do that. Why would I fight hard against temptation when God's allowed this bad stuff to happen to me? And if anybody ever had that excuse, Joseph had it. So Joseph had that excuse. He's not the one in power. He's not even married. I mean, there's that excuse too. He's not even married. It's not like he's promised himself to someone. There's not a a wife back at home that's going to get him in trouble. I mean, really, if ever there was a temptation where it's like, okay, you know what? It'll feel good. I won't get into trouble. It's really not my fault, God. If ever there was a guy who had reasons to give in, it's Joseph. But he doesn't give in. And you know, I want to jump out of this story for just a minute because you have to see, there's a reason why he didn't give in. Potiphar, this lustful temptation is incredibly dangerous for Joseph's soul. And uh, I want to take you to Proverbs chapter 5. And the Bible has many warnings about the, an adulterous woman, or a, and, and not just, I'm, I'm equal opportunity, an adulterous man, okay? But the Bible has many warnings about the adulterous woman. And this, I mean, Proverbs 5, you know, just so perfectly captures Potiphar's wife and how, what a danger she poses to Joseph's soul. And so I'm going to just jump there to Proverbs 5, and I just want to read you this chapter. I, I kind of feel like the Holy Spirit, as I was getting ready for this message, I just wanted to read Proverbs 5 to a bunch of you because I think that the Holy Spirit might use this reading to save a couple of your lives. And so I want to read it. And for all of us, it's a sobering good reminder. But this is what Proverbs chapter 5 says about the Potiphar-type woman, this possible lustful adulterous temptation. Chapter 5, verse 1 says this, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. I mean, so her lips are, they're dripping with honey. It sounds sweet. It's like oil. The fact of the matter is that it's, it's tempting. I mean, if it wasn't tempting, we wouldn't be tempted, right? It looks like it's a good idea. It looks sweet. It looks exciting. It looks like, hey, my spouse isn't meeting my love needs, isn't making me happy. This man or this woman at work listens to me. 
and they make me happy and they speak my love language and it looks good. If it didn't look good, it wouldn't be tempting. So it is tempting. It looks sweet. It looks like honey. It's smooth as oil. It looks great. But in the end, it is bitter. She is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. This is God's word. It'll never be wrong. That means every time, in every circumstance where you give in to the adulterous man or the adulterous woman, it might feel sweet, it might look sweet, it might even work out for a year or two or three or whatever, but in the end, that choice will turn out in deep in your soul, bitter, sharp as a two-edged sword, and if that doesn't happen, then you know something more than God because God wrote it. So it'll always happen. It always ends up wormwood, bitter and sharp. We go on to verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. The adulterous woman, the adulterous man. If you give in to them, if you go along with them, if you listen to them, if you partake, they can actually lead you down the path to spiritual and physical death. You say, what? Are you saying that, that adultery is the unforgivable sin, that adultery will cause me to go to hell? No, thank God. Thank God adultery can be forgiven. God can forgive any sin. And I could parade up here on stage a line of people in this church who have, they, they repented, they came clean, they brought their, their sin out into the open, and they have been restored, and many of them, their marriages have been restored, and God has forgiven them, and amen, God can forgive anything, and he can forgive adultery. It's not that adultery is the unforgivable sin. Well, you say, well, how can adultery then lead a person down the path to Sheol? I'll tell you how you can do it. Adultery, that lustful encounter, you go along with that, you pursue that woman, you pursue that man, and it can twist. Adultery has the power to twist your heart and harden you against God so that in the end you may never be able to repent. It can harden you and distance you against God, and you might think, well, it's just like stealing or lying, and later on I'll just repent and it'll be all good. But what you don't realize, you go down that path willingly, you can be led to a place where it's not even possible anymore. You don't, you're just so deceived, you don't want to repent. And prayerfully, as I was getting ready for this message, I thought of, I had a whole handful of circumstances came to my mind. People who just, not that long ago, a couple of years, a few years ago, where they were soft to Jesus, they were serving here in the church, they were involved, they were part of the family, they loved God, they were growing like weeds, and somewhere along the way, that the adulterous woman or the adulterous man came along, there was a temptation. Instead of running for it, they dabbled in it, and they thought, I can dabble with this and keep growing with Jesus. And then they pursued the thing, and now, far from God. They thought they could have, they thought they could have both. They thought they could have an amazing relationship with Jesus who had done so much in their lives and dabble with, a, with a, some adultery on the side and they found it's all or nothing with Jesus and now some of them are in a place that they can't even feel bad for their sins. There's, they just, they, and I'm not saying that it'll always go on like that and maybe God can still get a hold of them, but the, I'm telling you right now, this passage says that the adulterous woman or man can lead you down the path to Sheol to a place of physical and spiritual death. And so verse 7 goes on by the Holy Spirit. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. 
lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan. I mean, that statement, it's almost like you can feel the Holy Spirit pleading with us when we read this chapter. You can feel the Holy Spirit inspiring Solomon in this, pleading with every one of us, lest at the end of your life you groan. At the end of your life, in the short term, it just seemed like such a good idea. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been tempted. But at the end of your life, you look back on it and you groan with regret. When your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Okay, so this is Potiphar's wife, all right? She's a death trap. She's trying to ensnare Joseph's soul, and if she succeeds, she may be able to take him completely off the path that God has for him. She may be able to take him. I mean, she's probably, out of all the crazy stuff that happened to Joseph, remember, he had the dreams. God said, I'm going to raise you up, and you're going to be a great leader for me. And we've talked about that in this series. And of all the tests he went through, this may have been the most severe. If she can ensnare his soul, she may be able to take him completely off the path from God and may be able to, she may be the one best able to take Joseph off of God's plans for using him in the kingdom. And yet Joseph does not, ca- does not cave in, and it's a very severe test. This is such a severe test. This is not, again, I don't want to just glaze over this. You have to understand how severe a test this is. This is not, you know, some girl at the gym is flirting with you, and so you just need to get a membership at a different gym. Or you just need to go at a totally different time. Or you need to go with your buddies so you have some accountability or just start working out in a cold, dark, dank basement somewhere, but you can get away from it, all right? Okay, this isn't that. She's his master's wife, She can be wherever she wants in the home. She can always be around him. She's got the power. He can't get away from this. This is an incredibly severe test, all right? And I want to show you how severe it is. We're going to read verse 10. I'm going to read verse 7 again. We're going to read verse 10. I want to show you something here. And after a time, Potiphar's wife, again, as we saw, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. If we just skip ahead to verse 10, it says this, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day. I want everybody to say with me day after day, okay? Day after day. This isn't just a one-time, you know, temptation. Joseph had a bad hour or a bad night or a bad weekend, and the temptation came real strong, and he just barely made it through, and whew, he made it through the temptation. Hopefully that doesn't hit again anytime soon. That's not what happened here. Day after day. Day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, how long did this go on for? The Bible doesn't tell us exactly. But it went day after day. It went on for some time. We know that Joseph, from the time he was sold into slavery to the time he was raised up to be Pharaoh's you know, right-hand man, was 13 years. A uh, minimum of two of those years were in prison. Scholars think it's probably more like three, maybe four, in which case Joseph's time at Potiphar's house is somewhere around, you know, nine or ten, eight, you know, eight to ten years. We don't know exactly, but, but most scholars agree that the vast majority of the time was spent in Potiphar's house, not in the prison, okay? Okay, so now if that's true, wherever in there, Joseph, who's, you know, form and, form and appearance, he's so handsome, at somewhere in there, he, he grabs Potiphar's wife's uh, attention, and how far in is it? I don't know. 
But this, this temptation could, could have gone on for months, even years. No doubt it will have started very subtly. You know, Potiphar's wife is just always, you know, striking up conversations with him and, and is, you know, always trying to be in the room with him and making herself pretty, and it's, but it's more subtle. But at some point, point, she's becoming more and more and more bold, and she was using everything within her female walls. I mean, think of this. He's at her mercy. Whenever Potiphar's gone, he's one of Pharaoh's key officials, the captain of the guard. He will have been gone a lot. Whenever Potiphar's gone, she has Joseph at her mercy to do everything she possibly can to tempt him. And, you know, he walks in the room. Oops, you know, Potiphar's wife is there. And all the servants are gone. And the candles are lit. And he's getting a shoulder rub. And it's like she's doing everything she can day after day for months or even years. We don't know how long, but it goes on for a long time. And there's something in this right here that if we will stop here and if we will pay attention, it should challenge our theology. And I want to talk here for, uh, for a significant chunk of time in this message. I want to talk about struggle. I want to talk about the word struggle. Because many of us, subconsciously or consciously, and in some cases it's because we've been taught and there's so many false teachers out there teaching this, and others, it's just something we kind of pick up in the wind. But many of us have picked up this idea that when you get Jesus in your heart, he wants to so take over your life that he wants to even take away all your temptations. And if you will just focus on him and focus on him and focus on him, he will effortlessly produce all of the fruit of the Spirit in you and your temptations. If you just walk with him long enough, he will, excuse me, he will take all of your temptations away. And it just sounds good, so good, right? Jesus will just, it, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. He just, you ask him into your heart, you just focus on him, focus on him, focus on him, and over time, he just magically produced all his fruit. Even I've, even I've preached in years past, I've preached a little bit to this imbalance, and yes, there is true, you know, the fruit of the Spirit, and you can't do it without Jesus and all that. So, 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 so true. But it's this extreme where we go, yeah, I need Jesus to produce that fruit in me, but there's still something that I play in this. And, and the thing you need to realize is, because someone's sitting there right now and you're going, well, yeah, but the Bible clearly says that I can do nothing without Christ. I mean, and that's true. That's so true. I can do nothing without Christ. But the fact that I can't do anything without Christ doesn't mean that Christ doesn't want me to do anything. The fact that I can't do anything without him doesn't mean that he wants me to do nothing. See, what Jesus wants with us is a partnership. It's a partnership whereby his spirit does the work in me as I give him the sacrifice of my efforts and my struggle. And so, yes, it is Jesus doing it all in me. Yes, my struggle and my efforts, apart from Jesus' power inside of me, can do nothing. It's so, so, so true. It has to be Jesus. He's the only one powerful enough to do the work in me that he wants done. But it's not true that he just wants me to ask him into his heart and just look at him, and he'll just do it all in me without me doing anything. He wants a partnership. And my effort and my struggle is what releases his spirit in me. It's not my effort and my struggle that does anything. It's my effort and struggle that is my test of my love and commitment to him that releases his spirit in me to do his work. But we have this idea that if I just get, become a Christian, I just walk with Jesus long enough and focus on him long enough, all my temptations will go away. And I'll tell you how I know that so many of us have that belief because of three responses I regularly get from Christians when they face temptation. Because you might say, well, I've never... 
I don't believe that. Like, I can clearly see that. Yeah, it's a partnership. Yeah, yeah. And I can totally see that. And I don't believe that. Well, let me, let me test you with this. Because I, I regularly, all three of these responses, I talk to Christians with these responses when they're faced with temptation. One of the responses I get uh, to temptation is, is, uh, is that people, Christians, feel guilty because they have temptation. They feel guilty and I'm thinking of one guy in particular, and I, but I've had this conversation many times, but a, a couple months ago I had a conversation with a guy, and, and he wanted prayer, and he came and talked to me, and, and he said, you know, uh, I've been walking with the Lord for a few years now, and, but whenever I see a beautiful woman on the street, I'm tempted to look at her lustfully. And so I said to him, well, do you actually look at her lustfully? Well, no, I, I turn away, and I've been asking God for his help, and I've been getting stronger in that, but I'm still tempted, like something's wrong with my heart. And I said to him, well, see, do you see right there already? He expects that, we expect that when we walk with Jesus, he just changes my heart so I don't have temptations anymore. I don't have struggle anymore. And I said to him, well, the fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't promise us freedom from temptation until we get our new bodies at the resurrection. Yeah, until then, we're going to struggle. And uh, I always remember a quote Ken McAllister told me one time, speaking of the, the last one anyway, and he told me one time, that's, and I have to quote him because that way if you don't like the quote, you can blame him, not me. But, but uh, he he's, he's all, uh, told me in the past, he said, you know, there's two kinds, of, two kinds of men, those who struggle with lust and those who are dead. And, uh, you know, there, there's something true there. Um, but I said, you know, part, you know, God didn't just say, if you just focus on Jesus, focus on Jesus, you don't have any more temptations anymore. No, no, no. I, until you get your resurrected body, there's going to be some struggle. You know, another response I sometimes get from people, and I'll talk with people, and they're mad at God. They're not just feeling guilty about their temptations. They're actually mad at God about their temptations because they say, I've been praying and praying and praying for God to take away this temptation, and he hasn't taken it away from me, and they're blaming him because they're giving in. And they just kind of throw up their hands. You know what? If he's not going to take this temptation away from me, I may as well just go along with it. And the, that, you know where that anger is coming from? That, that guilt and anger is coming from a place that you expected that God would make it easy for you. You expected that he would take all the temptation out of your heart and you never have to struggle again because he just automatically produces all the fruit of the Spirit in you. Yes, the Holy Spirit has to produce the fruit of the Spirit in you, but he only unleashes that fruit. He only does that work in you as you partner with him and give him your best. And there will be times throughout your life when you will just have to white-knuckle, cold sweat, buckle in, and say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help me to say no here right now. And you will have to struggle. And a third response I sometimes get, and this is the worst one, at least with the first two, when people are mad or when they're feeling guilty or depressed, the Holy Spirit can still work in there because they at least know their sin is wrong. But there's a third response that I'm increasingly seeing, in, in, and especially among young people, and that is they don't even feel bad about their sin because they just say, well, Jesus hasn't taken that one away from me yet. You ever heard that one? And yes, and by the way, I just want a little caveat here. Yes, there is some truth to this whole thing of, you know, when a person gets saved, there's a discipleship process, and God doesn't necessarily work on all 6,000 things they need to change in one week, okay? And there's a process, and he's not hitting them on this stuff before they get, I totally get that. But then there's this other place where that goes, where people just sit back and go, well, whew, he hasn't taken the lust thing away from me yet, so I'm just kind of persisting in it. Thank you that the blood of Jesus just covers me in that because he hasn't taken it away from me. Now, do we see Joseph giving any of those three responses in his temptation? Does he get mad at God? Oh, day after day, she's coming after him. 
He's got every reason to give in. She's got all the power. This is a fiery temptation. Day after day, she comes after him. Does he get mad at God and say, well, fine, God, if you're going to just let me be in this temptation, fine, I'm just going to give in. Does he get all discouraged? Is he moping around? God's not taking away the temptation. Does he kick back and just enjoy it? Does he give in and say, well, Lord, if you're not going to take the temptation away, I'm just going to go along with it. This must not be too bad. You're not working on me in the lust department yet. Thank you very much. And just go along with it. No, he doesn't do any of those things. What does he do? Day after day, she's after him for months or years. And what does he do? He overcomes. He overcomes. By the Spirit of God? Yes. But were there many a morning and a night, I'm sure, where he was calling out to God, oh God, give me the strength. There was struggle. There was intense struggle. The problem is that today in Christianity, we've come to this place where the moment you talk about effort, the moment you talk about struggle, the moment you say from the pulpit, hey, you might have to work hard sometimes, you might actually have to buckle down and use some willpower sometimes, not that you can overcome your sins by willpower alone. No, you need Jesus' spirit. I want to just emphasize that to you. has to be by him. You can't do it on willpower alone. But it is often through willpower and effort that your love for Jesus, he says, I love that you're committed to me, and now his spirit flows into you to help you overcome. But the problem now is in many churches, because of some of the false teaching out there, is the moment you talk about effort or hard work or about willpower, people say you're talking about works salvation. Well, no way. We don't preach works salvation. I'll tell you what works salvation is. Works salvation is, I think that by doing good things, I can get myself saved. Impossible. Impossible. Every one of us here has thought and said and done so many dirty and impure and wrong, hateful things that all of us here deserve hell. And only a free gift from Jesus can save you. Okay? That's the front end. Forgiveness has to be a free gift. Nobody can earn it. But the back end is this. Walking with Jesus is not you just sitting back and him doing all the work. He wants you. Yes, I give you forgiveness. Now walk with me. And as you partner with him, you give him your best. And sometimes that means you white-knuckling it like Joseph day after day, riding this thing out by the skin of your teeth, in pain. It hurts. It's not comfortable. And his spirit keeps you in that time and you overcome. This is so amazingly true. It's all over the New Testament. I want to show you one passage. I'm going to take you to 2 Peter chapter 1. And I want to show you this partnership. I want to show you this two sides of the Christian life. Yes, it's, and, and I'm not saying, I, I don't hear me saying that the Christian life is all about struggle, okay? What I'm trying to get you to do here is not focus on struggle instead of Jesus. The Christian life is about focusing on Jesus. What I'm talking about struggle so much in this message is so that is because many people, as they focus on Jesus, are thrown off by struggle. They didn't expect that they would ever have to. They didn't expect that God would leave them some temptations to drive them deeper into him. So yes, the focus of the Christian life is not struggle or effort. The focus is Jesus. But what I, don't, but what I want you to be is ready because there will be times of struggle. And when they hit you, keep focusing on Jesus and you will have to bear down a bit. But I want to show you this partnership of the power of God working in your life 
as you give him effort. Second Peter chapter 1. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. It's God's power. Who makes you a godly person and kind and gentle and loving, all sort of things. That only happens from God's power. You cannot do that on yourself. You can't work it up. You can't fake it. That is from God's power alone. Amen. This is God's side. The verse carries on. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So how is the power of God released in my life? It's through knowing Jesus. It's relationship. It's not, I prayed a prayer once when I was 5 or 15 or 50. Man, we know, I know many Christians who prayed a prayer once, and their lives are no different than non-Christians. Just because you prayed a prayer doesn't mean the power of God has ever done anything in your life. But as you know Jesus through the knowledge of him, Jesus, as you focus on him and walk with him and press deeper into him, the power of God is released in your life as you walk with him. So, by the way, just for one second here, we just jump out of this passage for a second. If you ever needed a bigger reason to, to be disciplined and to spend time with God in prayer and in the word and in silence with him regularly in devotions, it's right here. Because the power of God is not just randomly released in your life because you prayed a prayer once. It's released in your life as you know Jesus. And as you walk with him, divine power released into your life to do what? Verse 4, look at this. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What promises? So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. As you get to know Jesus, God's divine power is released in your life so that you actually begin to share in Jesus' character. How many of you would like to share in Jesus' character. Kindness, love, grace, forgiveness. Oh, his character, joy. His character is beautiful. You want to share in his character? It's, it, you can't fake it. You can't work it up. It comes from God's divine power. As you get to know him, you actually begin to share in his character. Now, here's the problem. So far, I haven't read you anything different than what a lot of Christians today are teaching. It's all God, Right? And a lot, of, now, a lot of Christians, part of the problem with the way that we read the Bible today is we read it in snippets. And there's nothing wrong with reading snippets of Scripture, better than not reading any Scripture. And there's nothing wrong with our daily bread or little devotionals that take snippets of Scripture. But there is a problem when that's all you ever get is snippets because the snippets always stop here. The snippets stop at verse 4. The snippets stop at, oh, if you just get to know Jesus... God's divine power releasing you. You become like him. Oh, that's what a good thought, devotional thought. Thank you, Jesus. Off to work. Listen to some Christian music and go and be whatever you want to be at work. But at least you felt good in your devotional time. See, the, the passage doesn't stop here. If we stop here, then the Christian life is all about God and not about a partnership where you also have to participate. But if we read on past the snippet and we go to verse 5, we find that in response to the fact that it's God's power that has to work in me as I get to know Jesus, we find, verse 5, for this very reason, for this reason, because what reason? Because God's power wants, because God wants to send his power to work in you as you know Jesus, because of that, look at this, make every effort. It's not an automatic. Our response to it, us needing God's spirit and power to work in our lives and change us and help us overcome temptation and help us grow in character and become better people, our response to that is not sit back and go, oh, Jesus, I'm just waiting for you to do it. Our response should be to make every effort. We join him. It's his spirit unlocked in our lives as we knuckle down and do what's right. 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, the good things, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit comes from God, but there will be times, and sometimes it will be effortless. The more you get to know Jesus, wonderful, awesome. You know, some of those characteristics will come out of you more and more naturally as you practice them, but there will be times when the fruit of the Spirit will not be automatic, and at those times you shouldn't get discouraged and you shouldn't get mad at God. You should buckle down and say, Lord, I need your Spirit, and I'm going to have to unlock it with some effort here. Please fill me with your Spirit as you do your best. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. He's going to go through a whole list of things that will require some effort on our part, some work. It's not work salvation. It's the Bible. It's walking with Jesus. And knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, verse 10, brothers, be all the more diligent. The Christian life is not sit back and just let Jesus do, all, do it all. The Christian life is I have a relationship with Jesus, and because I have a relationship with him and I love him so much, I'm going to work on my character. I'm going to work. I'm going to ask him to help me, and then I'm going to attack my sinful temptations. I'm going to overcome them by his spirit. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Whoever thought that you'd have to be diligent to confirm your salvation? See, we have a wrong theology about salvation. We think it's just a prayer. I can live however I want, and I'm in. Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm the fact that you're saved. If you're saved, you will be the type of person who pursues Jesus and does whatever it takes to become a person with the fruit of the Spirit, to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Joseph didn't give in. Day after day, there was struggle. The temptation wasn't gone. Day after day, he will have called out to God. There will have been times when he just barely hung on. But day after day, he withstood the temptation and didn't give in. And you know, when you are in that struggle, when you were in that struggle, again, Joseph didn't do it by his effort. He did it by the Spirit of God. But the Spirit of God came because he was willing to give whatever he had. But you know, when you're in that struggle, there are times when you're in that struggle and it's hot and you don't know what you're going to do and it's just going on and on and you need encouragement. Lord, how am I going to go on in this day after day? There's a passage of Scripture I want to read for you now. Amazing passage. Then we're going to go to Joseph and be done. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 4 is an amazing passage of Scripture that when you are just about to give up and when you're mad at God and you're discouraged and you're feeling guilt and you don't know how, how to overcome because it's day after day, you're in one of those seasons when it's day after day for you and it's really hard and you don't know how you're going to make it, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 to 4 is a verse for you. And this is what the author of Hebrews says to those of you today who are struggling and in the heat of the battle the day after day. Consider him. Remember Jesus when you are just about to give up, when you think it's too much, when you think you can't endure anymore, when you think you can't say no anymore, think about Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself says you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your, look at there it is again, struggle 
in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know what I love? This encouragement here is totally different than how many preachers today and false teachers are encouraging Christians. Many false teachers today are encouraging Christians that if they'll just focus on Jesus, he'll take it all away from them. He'll just, he'll just take it away and make their desires different. And, and yes, there is some of that. I mean, we have the encounter retreat and personal ministry. And as you walk with Jesus, certainly there are many things that, and, and by the Holy Spirit, and as you walk with him year after year, your heart really does change. And some of your appetites certainly do change. And some of your, some of your temptations will actually go all the way away, some of them, but not all of them. For some of you, some of the ones you would like to be gone the most won't ever be gone in this lifetime. And so the writer of Hebrews doesn't encourage them with, hey, just keep going and all your temptations are going to be gone. Just Jesus is going to take it all away from you. That's not what he says. He says, when you're struggling, don't think about the fact that they're going to be gone. Think about this. Jesus went through so much hostility and he endured so much and he did it right till the death. Let that encourage you. If he could withstand that kind of hostility to the death, you can withstand a little more temptation. And I love that line he throws in at the end. He says, and it's not like you've resisted to the point of shedding blood yet. I mean, there's your encouragement for Sunday, September 8th. It's not like, oh, Chris, I'm so, I'm just, whew, the temptation is hot. Well, it's not like you've, it's not like you've resisted that temptation to the point where you were bleeding yet, Right? And right away, what do we think of? It's not, think about Jesus. You haven't resisted the point of shedding blood. You know what comes to mind? Garden of Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be crucified. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Famous story, right? Luke chapter 22. And he is struggling to obey. Not struggling in the sense of a sinful person struggling. He had no sin in him and he was God. But what he was about to go through was extremely intense and he was so stressed out about it that he was wrestling with the Father in prayer and he was wrestling so hard that it says in Luke 22, verse 44, that he sweat huge drops of blood onto the ground. That's how stressful obedience was for him. And he is the author and perfecter of our faith. If obedience was sometimes a matter of by the power of the Spirit, and of course, then the Father was strengthening him and empowering him, all sorts of stuff. Yes! We don't do it by effort. The point is we do it by effort. The point is sometimes it requires effort to partner with Jesus so that his spirit will enable us to obey. But if the author and perfecter of our faith had to obey, and it was so stressful to obey that it caused him mental anguish and stress like that, you better believe there will be times when obedience and saying no to temptation will cost you that kind of pain too. And so when you are in the heat of the day after day, God, why aren't you taking this away from me? The writer of Hebrews says, think about Jesus and be encouraged. You haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Well, I want to go back to Joseph now. I want to finish this. Genesis 39, 7-10. Because I want to show you the key. Because... Again, the focus of our Christianity, I'm not telling you today, I'm not preaching this message because I want you to think about struggle, that every day the Christian life is a struggle. It's not every day is a struggle, necessarily. And the focus of your life, I'm not trying to tell you today that the focus of your life should be on effort or struggle. The focus of our faith is Jesus, and the, the focus should be relationship with Jesus. Why I'm talking to you so much about struggle is so that while you're focusing on him and while you're walking with him, you aren't surprised or thrown off track when you hit struggle. 
that you're not surprised that even when you're walking with Jesus, until you get your resurrected body, you're still going to have sin problems. And so while you're walking with Jesus, don't be thrown off at the fact that sometimes you're going to have to put in some effort and sometimes you're going to have to struggle. And sometimes that will take a long time. It'll be intense, like with Joseph, day after day. But I want to show you now the key at the end of this message to how do you overcome struggle long term? How did Joseph overcome day after day? What was the key? I want to show you something in his heart. It's the foundation. It's the perspective that is required. I mean, it's one thing to say no to temptation once. Phew, I kind of got lucky. Hope that doesn't hit again anytime soon. It's one thing to say, you know, get pumped up in a service and say no to temptation for a week or a month. It's another thing to live day after day and be willing to say no to it your entire life because you love Jesus so much. And I want to show you the perspective. I want to show you now Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife. It's a profound response. And in his response to Potiphar's wife, you're going to see two things. And these two things comprise the key to overcoming struggle long-term, not just for a day or a week. Start back in verse 7. After a time, Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And said to his master's wife, now I want you to see his heart in this. I want you to see his perspective in this. What are his reasons for saying no? But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I want you to notice in, in Joseph's response to Potiphar's wife that he never wants his reasons for saying no. He doesn't talk about himself. He talks about Potiphar, her husband, and he talks about God. But the reason he says no, see, here's the, I, I want to just show you, this is profound. This is the foundation. You want to become a person who long-term says no to temptation and becomes a fruit of the Spirit? It's right here, right here. See, look at what doesn't enter into the equation. Joseph is not debating this thing based on his personal happiness. He's not going, um, well, what'll make me happy? What'll keep me out of trouble? My wife hasn't been meeting my love needs. This, uh, this person is. He's not debating yes or no based on his personal happiness. He actually cares about Potiphar. How could I do? Potiphar trusts me. How could I do this thing with you? Your husband trusts me. And because he cares about Potiphar, he says no because he actually cares about him. Let me tell you something right now. If we actually started to care about other people, it would knock out a huge chunk of your sin problems right there. Can you imagine if when you're getting tempted... If you put yourself in your spouse's shoes and said to yourself, if I do this sin, I wonder what it would feel like to be her. I wonder if I go through this temptation, what would it feel like to be that person's spouse? How could I do such a thing and hurt them? But you know what? We have, we have a problem today in this generation. I think it's probably a problem with every human generation, but it certainly is true today in our culture. We are so concerned with self and with happiness, and that is a huge, massive source of our sin problems. And we've got people, God has blessed them with beautiful children. And they will go, and they will have some fling with another person. Why'd you have that fling? Well, 
He, he wasn't making me happy. She wasn't making me happy. He or she was. Since when did your personal happiness become more important than your kids' well-being? So we're just going to break up. We're going to do all kinds of things. And it's not just adultery. It's all the sins. We're going to do stupid, stupid things because it makes me happy and I don't care about the eternal destiny of my children who God gave me. So Joseph, though, he's not thinking about himself. He says, how can I do that kind of a thing to Potiphar? And can you imagine the radical perspective that would be if every time when we were tempted to sin, if we would start to think about other people, how would this feel to be them? How would this feel to be my kids? How would this feel here? How could I do this? It might feel good to me, but how could I do it if it's going to hurt these people? The road to hell is absolutely littered and paved with people who think only about themselves. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, narrow is the path that leads to life. Wide is the road. Wide is the highway that leads to hell. And it's littered with people who only think about themselves. Narrow is the road. This is what Jesus said, not me. Matthew chapter 7. Narrow is the road and hard the path and only few find it that leads to life. Why are there so few on the path that leads to life? Because the only people on that path are the ones who are devoted to Jesus and actually care about others. Joseph actually cared about Potiphar. And then there's a second thing, even more importantly, his care for Potiphar came out of something else. He actually loved God. He actually loved God. Look at that. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Can you imagine that kind of a heart where when you're tempted to sin, you actually think to yourself, how then could I do this wickedness against God? He actually cares about God. He cares about God and he cares about Potiphar. When you get that kind of a perspective, God's spirit can do all kinds of work in you and you can go through day after day intense temptation and overcome in the long run. Why? Because the key to overcoming in the long run, it, to overcoming struggle in the long run is love. Love for God and love for people. Only love is strong enough to stand up against temptation long term. I want to finish with this quote and then we're going to worship. We're going to we're, just, uh, we're going to be just maybe a minute over by the time we're done the song, but it's just a powerful song. We worship Jesus. But uh, I had a conversation with a staff member this week, and, and he gave me a quote that I just love. I said, that actually just matches a per per perfectly with the message this weekend. He said, you can't fight sin with a cold heart. And we have got to pursue Jesus. That's what I want you to get from this message. We have got to pursue Jesus with everything. And then when we hit struggle, we have to be willing to give him all of our effort. And as we give him our effort, his spirit will come in and he will help us to overcome. I want you to stand with me. I'm going to pray for you. What we need is hearts that love Jesus. So I want you to stand. I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to worship Jesus because only he is worthy and only he can help us to overcome. And he's so worthy, he's actually worthy of our effort. He's actually worthy of us in love sometimes having to work to be the kind of people he wants us to be and to overcome the temptations he doesn't want us to give into. Lord Jesus, we lift you up, King of kings and Lord of lords. We love you. We love you enough that we will partner with you and give you our efforts. We will say no to temptation, Jesus, that feels good to us. Give us strength by your spirit as we begin to say no, as we begin to do right. 
I pray that you would enable us to overcome even the intense day-after-day struggles that came like to Joseph. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.